Mutual aid, as a search term according to Google Trends, spiked in the last 12 months, with the peak being at the beginning of June 2020. The term mutual aid network also spiked right at the beginning of the pandemic on March 22, 2020. Before that, I personally had never heard of mutual aid, and my guess and the date show that that is largely because I am white. Black and trans and black trans communities, however, were thankfully ahead of me. Today, I'm going to be talking to Elle Hearns, the founder and executive director of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. The Institute distributed more than $250,000 worth of grants to more than 250 black, transgender, and non-binary people as part of its COVID-19 relief fund. The fund was started right as the pandemic hit. No waiting to see what the government response would be. No waiting to see if everything would go back to normal in two weeks. No hesitation. Because Hearns knew what so many white or cis people didn't. No one can save us but us. According to www.mutualaidhub.org, mutual aid is cooperation for the sake of the common good. It's getting people to come together to meet each other's needs, recognizing that as humans, our survival is dependent on one another. Activist Dean Spade calls it solidarity, not charity. Examples include spreadsheets of community resources, public food fridges, providing housing and health care to each other, filling in the gaps that affect specific communities while also fighting the structures that created these issues in the first place. It's no wonder that those search terms spiked in the first two weeks of the pandemic in the U.S. when people lost their incomes rapidly and knew they would soon be unable to support their families or pay rent among many other problems. Or that it spiked again in the beginning of June when Black Lives Matter protests were ramping up in the wake of the murder of George Floyd at the end of May. Elle's work is focused on the Black trans community, and I am honored to have her as my guest today. Okay, so Elle, for people who, like, ask what you do, what what do you say? Well, I do a lot of everything. I am an artist. I am a organizer and known as an activist, but I also am the founder and the executive director of a nonprofit organization called the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. And so I spend most of my days running and supporting an organization to provide support directly to our community. We're an organization that works to protect and defend the human rights of Black transgender people in the United States. And so, yeah, that's a multitude of things, but I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners what exactly the Marsha P. Johnson Institute is? I I mean, I think there's a lot of people listening who will already know, but just for who doesn't know. So we are a national nonprofit organization, and the organization really came and was born out of my work over many years of developing and supporting many movements across race, class, and gender. And so that specificity around my work and my own lived experience really led to me creating uh, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, or MPJI as short. I wanted to really create an intentional space that could support 
the continuation of movement and Marsha P. Johnson and her legacy really has informed so much of what we have in society and, and what we have as an understanding of the experiences of transgender people. And so that legacy felt important to protect and it felt really important to protect that with the Black trans community in mind because so much of our history hasn't been documented. Uh, a really big point was to make sure that Black trans people had a political and organizational home across the country. And so that was really kind of the purpose behind it. But, you know, our work on a day-to-day basis really is, you know, in three pillars of organizing, advocating, and building community. And so we really look to our community to, you know, let us know what it is that they need while also offering what it is that we have available to us to really support our collective power and to create more opportunities for transformative leadership to emerge. But most importantly, more than anything, for our community to have the ability to heal from colonized colonized violence that Mm -hmm. has really permeated since, you know, the inception of colonies across the globe. So can you explain what mutual aid is and what the history of it is? So for communities, indigenous communities, for Black people across the diaspora, African people across the diaspora, there's been a consistent practice post-colonization and even before in really creating a reciprocal process of support, a reciprocal process of sharing resources and services with the idea that the entire community would be able to benefit from such exchange. And so I think historically, mutual aid has always been referenced from an academic lens as something that calls for a political process or a political participation from people in communities who would take responsibility for providing care to themselves, but also providing care to their community at large. And so that's essentially, you know, what mutual aid is. It is something that has consistently been embedded in culture across continents, across, you know, class, across race, Mm -hmm. but particularly has been practiced in Black communities, in working class communities and in neighborhoods, and also across LGBT communities. And so it is something that is available to everyone, but it has been an inherent practice of those communities. And I, I would also offer that a lot of mutual aid does get somewhat disconnected from some of the political theories that I think emphasize why mutual aid is is a necessity for the survival of humanity and something that will rival this idea of what America really loves, which is exceptionalism and mm-hmm. the survival of the fittest kind of mindset. And so, you know, I'm thinking about social theories such as Darwinism and, you know, those type of more left-leaning <laughs> political ideologies that... <laughs> Certainly, I think, you know, there's a lot of theories that kind of refute the liberalism Mm -hmm. that people like to attempt to associate mutual aid with. So, like, 
basically in practice, it's sort of picking up the slack where largely these, like you said, black or low income indigenous communities are left in the dust by charities or government social programs. So like I, you know, I looked up mutual aid, obviously, and learned more about it along with, I'm sure, other white people. It's like resource sheets and providing temporary housing and storage. And, you know, you see these community refrigerators with food for everyone. And I think you're right. It kind of is rewiring against the individualism that we're we're taught to have where, you know, these things that I think are viewed as privileges are actually rights and you kind of have to rewire your your brain in that capacity. So how do you undo a scarcity mindset where you're sort of like, oh, the, the, I need to hoard everything for myself and I need to just make sure I'm okay? Well, I think it's really important for people to understand that you don't have to undo anything that you haven't created. And so, you know, a lot of my work is not an undoing, but just in reimagining and really creating the space for Black transgender people to imagine ourselves outside of what others have created. And so scarcity is not something that we try to orbit ourselves around in our work at the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. We really try to think about our work as abundant as possible because Mm -hmm. we think that Black people are out of this world, meaning that there are no limits or scarcity that could really interrupt the brilliance and the survival of our culture and of our artistry and of all the things that have really influenced so much of the society we see today. And that's something that I think has forever been the imprint, but will continue to be. And so, you know, for me, this idea of undoing is something that I try not to associate myself with. I do think the challenge is for those who benefit from these systems of oppression, for for white people in particular, and those who certainly believe in the empire of colonialism and capitalism, for those people to really take an active role in combating the scarcity that does exist amongst marginalized communities. And so I do think there's a responsibility by those who are referred to in society at large as privileged people to take a more active role in the undoing and moving beyond this idea that the undoing happens just at the polls. That's just not the reality. Unfortunately, we saw an insurrection take place at the nation's capital, which some would argue is the world's capital. And, you know, there are people who feel very emboldened to try to wage war against this society being just for all. And so much more has to happen on those who who benefit from communities being downtrodden, essentially, from communities not having access to the resources that they need to survive, but also to thrive beyond survival. You know, I don't understand why we only have an expectation of our people and of our humanity that we would just survive. (laughs) You know, I think everyone deserves to live an abundant and imaginative and brilliant life. And I do think that we all have a responsibility to create a world in which that's possible. Yeah, I think scarcity mindset kind of only exists in a certain group of people, a certain type of people. And you're right. I mean, I'm sure Google searches for mutual aid sprung up over the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think in July, we did a, an episode about indigenous communities during COVID. And they've actually had lower cases because they take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's such a foreign thing to like most 
you know, white, middle class, upper class Americans. Mm -hmm. So how did you get the ball rolling on the Marsha P. Johnston Institute COVID relief fund? And like, when did you know it would be necessary? Because it seems like it started right away when the pandemic hit. So a couple of things happened for the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. At the time that the national emergency was issued here for the United States, I was in Miami on a work-related trip. And while I was in Miami, it started becoming really clear that whatever is happening across the pond is making its way here because you could feel the energy shifting and you could feel just the change. And, you know, Miami is a very active city and it wasn't very active. And so just being in a different city outside of New York City or outside of my, you know, my birthplace, Columbus, Ohio, I was able to watch things transpire differently than maybe I would have if I would have been in a place of comfort Mm -hmm. or a place that I was familiar with. So in those early days, I would say March, that first month for us, I think we really just were watching, watching like the rest of the world to see what was going to happen because there was still so much that was unknown. But in those early days, you know, I told my team immediately that from this day forward, our work it's no longer going to be the same. And the priority for our work is to make sure that our entire team is able to survive. And so that was the first shift that we made. It was an internal one because we understood that the relief needed to happen for us in order to be able to continue to do our work and to run an organization. And I did not want my team to not think that they were a priority or to feel as though their labor was more valuable than their lives. So that was the first piece for the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. How do we protect and provide our team with as many resources as they need to really prepare for what this pandemic is going to bring to us? And so once we made that shift, it became very clear that, okay, now we have the capacity because we're protected to really protect our community. And, you know, in those early days, I didn't know what it looked like. We're a grassroots organization. So financially, I didn't know what resources we had that we could really support. And so, you know, I I really knew that we did need to provide that support considering that we are a nonprofit organization. And I don't know where the Black transgender community is going to get the support that they need to survive the pandemic from. And so we launched our COVID relief program in May of 2020. And within that first, I would say week, actually it wasn't even a week, it was probably three days, we received over 800 applications. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of set off our COVID relief program because, you know, I knew that we only had a budget to maybe give 10 people a grant you know, to give them some type of relief. So from May of 2020 until March of 2021, our program has grown significantly. As you referenced earlier, we've given support to over 250 individuals. And, you know, that was just the last time that we reported publicly. I think those numbers have since grown internally Mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of people that have been supported. And the actual dollar amount is closer to 400,000. And so, you know, for me, I've told our team that this is going to be a long term 
program, that this is a long-term effort because Mm -hmm. COVID has not stopped, you know, it has not slowed down. And there's an economic crisis that also coincides with the pandemic that we've always tried to be mindful of just because we knew what the economic crisis was for the Black transgender community prior to COVID even existing. Do you think that because you are in the Black transgender community that you were able to organize more quickly because you were aware immediately that there wasn't going to be a lot of government assistance? You were aware that this is a community that often gets left behind? The reality is I've always had to be 10 steps ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure there are so many other people who can relate to that. And so for me, you know, I've had to really reframe from this idea or this expectation that help is going to come. Mm-hmm. And so as an organizer, I know that I must create the help that I need. So that's always the way that I operate. And that was the same kind of mindset that I had towards making sure that the people were able to get the support that they need. We don't have time to wait. We don't have time to wait for a bailout. We don't have time to wait for a stimulus. We don't have time to wait for another Black trans woman to be murdered. We don't have time to wait for another Black person to be murdered by the police. For white people to wake up and to want to support what we know is going to happen to us. We actually have to move immediately, always, all the time. So that kind of rapid decision-making is just, again, I think inherently embedded in our understanding of what our organization's role is and what our, our movement role is. You know, we consider ourselves a movement organization. And so we recognize that, you know, by creating a COVID relief program, that everybody follows us and, and follows suit. So if we create something, then maybe everybody else will create something And I think you can certainly look at what we have and see that that certainly is the model. I love this idea that we can take care of each other. So I wanted to ask how how mutual aid works with housing. Well, I'll give examples, but I also am sensitive to the amazing folks who are creating mutual aid programs around housing specifically. Mm -hmm. We've prioritized several areas in terms of our stipend approval process. You know, one thing I will say, not everyone gets approved Mm -hmm. for one of our COVID stipends, you know, unfortunately. And that's something that I think a lot of our applicants didn't understand. You know, there was some resistance from maybe some provocateurs who wanted to question our process or wanted to question our funders. And so what we've been very clear about is like, respect the work of Black trans-led organizations, respect the work of Black trans women who are really trying to figure out a way to support our community. But I will say like, for us, the way that our COVID relief program works around housing is any applicant that is expressing a housing insecurity Mm -hmm. in their application Those are the applications that we're reviewing. Those are the applications that we're prioritizing. Our priority areas are around those who are homeless or experiencing the possibility of homelessness. Our application process prioritizes former sex workers or those who are currently doing sex work and also those who are formerly incarcerated. So those are the priorities in our selection process for our stipends. We review 
each application and, and do our due diligence to verify each of our applicants' identities so we can ensure that we are not sending money to applicants who do not qualify. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. benefits from mutual aid and how can someone else participate or or help and contribute? Well, everyone benefits from mutual aid. I think that's part of the big draw around its kind of sensationalized media infatuation. You know, like you see mutual aid everywhere. You see corporations participating in mutual aid at this point because it's sexy. But, you know, I think the the sexiest thing about it is that everybody gets to benefit the community that is most impacted by whatever is happening certainly should benefit the most, but that's not always what happens. And you look at any natural catastrophe, any any pandemic or anything of this sort, and unfortunately, those who are living it, those who are experiencing it, really don't get, I think, all the benefit in the ways that they should, because once people understand that there's value and capital connected to it, then everybody kind of wants a piece of the pie. But essentially, everyone benefits from it. It should not be a surprise that during this time of pandemic, you know, in areas across the country, crime has gone up, violence has increased in many communities, gun violence has increased, domestic abuse has increased. You know, this idea that if we take care of each other certainly would create more space to minimize the harm that so many people are experiencing across so many areas. And so everyone benefits from mutual aid. I think at the end of the day, it's really important for people to assess whether or not they should benefit from mutual aid so that those who need to benefit the most in terms of having a chance to survive, if those people will have the opportunity, you know, and I don't think surviving is a benefit. I think that is a necessity that should always be a part of our efforts and and whatever those efforts are. Yeah, it's humanizing other people. <laughs> it's viewing it's viewing us as a collective instead of as as individuals, which I think gives us more power that people just didn't like you talked about collective bargaining or having more of a political say beyond just the polls. I mean, mm-hmm. so how how can one participate or contribute or help if if they are someone who doesn't need to benefit from mutual aid if they're like a a, a person with some privilege? There's multiple ways. Continue to donate. You know, I think a lot of times folks make a single donation. And while that's beautiful and it's an amazing gesture, you know, being a reoccurring donor for a mutual aid program or just being a reoccurring donor for, you know, grassroots organizations like the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, I think is the number one way that people with privilege can support because it sustains the work. It sustains the benefit to the communities that need it the most. So I will always, always, always say like, give money. And people are like, oh, are you always, are you trying to empty people's pockets? I am. Yes, I am. (laughs) Because, you know, we're clear about the wage gap. We're clear about the economic gap. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we're not, that definitely is something to maybe educate your listeners on, you know, like what the value of the dollar is in this country, you know, for Black people, for Black women. So yeah, donate, join an organization, you know, join the front lines, join the protests, support those who are resisting against capitalism, who are resisting against the police, because to operate during this pandemic as if the government, as if the former president of the United States 
did not actively play a role in organizing the demise of humanity would really be a falsity of what occurred, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we'd be doing a disservice to say anything other than the truth. And so the resistance is always necessary and needed, you know, so I would say those are the main things. I think we really need to see the same type of belief system utilized as those who are opposed to the humanity of everyone. I referenced the nation's capital insurrection because that is a reflection of what happens when we do not continue to resist. <laughs> yeah, the other side is is doing their own thing. Yeah. So I was reading too, like the activist Dean Spade was talking about mutual aid projects are often critical of the charity model and may use mm-hmm. the motto solidarity, not charity. So how how does it differentiate itself from charity? Well, you know, I think charity is exactly what it says. It's one-sided? Well, (laughs) you know, charity is a tax write-off. Uh-huh. Charity, and I'm a definitions girl, so I'm literally like, you know, definition of charity is nonprofit-making organization, Uh not-for-profit organization, voluntary organization, charitable institution, fund, trust. Charity is typically about one's Mm self-interest. And so, yes, one-sided for sure, but it is, I think, this piece around one's ability to benefit from their support. Mm -hmm. And so I think mutual aid really calls us into question, as I was referencing earlier, what is it that we believe about our support that should make it accessible, you know, like, should our support be something that we should also be able to benefit from? Should we be able to access Mm -hmm. our own benefit from our support? And I think that is what mutual aid shifts around the charity mindset that I think the nonprofit structure has created. And so I think that Dean is right, that solidarity is necessary. You know, I introduced a framework around solidarity that I introduced to, you know, several large movements several years ago, because solidarity is the only way forward, calling into question the long-term sustainability of our efforts and our ability to continue to be in solidarity is the only way to continue to move forward with the survival of humans in the planet. So, you know, it's bigger. It's, uh, it's always a bigger picture. And I think that the charity model is certainly one that is dated and certainly isn't one that will uphold humanity the way that humanity deserves. And so we operate as a nonprofit organization. We certainly move with a solidarity kind of framework and mindset in practice and are constantly doing our work to really push back against some of the standards that charity has created in terms of the transactions. Mm-hmm. And standards. I mean, who, yeah. you know, the gatekeeping of who gets to have what and even governmental services where they're like, you know, if you want to be on SNAP, you can't get this certain thing. Or I think they're charity and government. There are restrictions and, and gatekeeping that might not exist with mutual aid. They are not interested in if you deserve this, we believe everybody deserves this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. You know, this idea that 
our tactics have to to mimic those that are palatable and <laughs> mm-hmm, approved mm-hmm. by somebody. It's truly something that's decentralized. It's deprofessionalized. It's mm-hmm. it's done by volunteers, if you will. I will always say that sometimes our ideas of of more socialist ideas certainly have to do a better job of considering race. Because again, I do think that privileged people have an advantage in considering, you know, these kind of decentralized or deprofessionalized or lack of hierarchical spaces that Black trans people, unfortunately, are already so without resources that it's very difficult for us to be just volunteer-based. Yeah. But I, I do think while there are some amazing references for mutual aid versus charity, I think that who participates in these kind of building out of classifications and understandings of what the distinctions are is still not reflective of the communities that are impacted the most. And so I think there's a lot more solutions available to us. And it's part of the reason why we take such great pride in our COVID relief work, because we recognize that we're creating an actual practice around a theoretical idea that most people have not been able to sustain or figure out in in the ways that we have. And when I say we, I say that as Black people, Mm -hmm. but also as marginalized Black people within even the Black community. You know, I've been reading a lot about the AIDS crisis since the pandemic started, and I have a family member with AIDS, and so I've I've grown up around it. And I I read you in um in a them article, and I put the quote here. Typically, what's happening is that Black people are experiencing a pandemic alone, or Black trans people are experiencing a pandemic alone. But the entire globe is under the strain of COVID nineteen. It makes it feel very tense, and I think it makes it feel even more dangerous for those of us who are already experiencing danger from the pandemic. So I think, you know, mutual aid has become more well-known during COVID, but these are communities that already had the idea of taking care of each other and taking care of our own. To other communities, why do you think sharing resources is seen as so strange? You know, there is these models, these ancient models that have been passed down. And it is, I do think, the impact of colonization, this idea of ownership is something that other communities, particularly white people, feel a lot of ownership to resources and to the idea of who they'll share their resources with. White men in particular just get richer and they share their riches with white men and everybody else follows suit. So I think it's just a historical tradition for white people in particular to continue to be the gatekeepers of everyone's salvation. And I think that's one of the things that is happening during this time is that everything is crumbling. Mm -hmm. And as always, white people are thinking about protecting their assets, protecting their interests, and sustaining their businesses and sustaining their communities. And also making sure that part of their sustainability is also how can we how can we buy up more? (laughs) How can we own even more? How can we take even more people's rights away so that ours are constantly protected and our interests are always protected? And that is why, you know, you see such a strain 
or such a resistance movement happening from the right because they're clear that everything that they believe is theirs, everything that they believe their ancestors fought for is up for grabs. And really the only thing that's up for grabs here is the humanity of, you know, all of those whose humanities have been consistently reduced over a period of time. Yeah, I mean, we've seen too, like, a shift towards handling things more locally in terms of your direct community. Have you seen a lot of that too? And do you think that that shift was inevitable? I think that the shift locally is certainly a strategic and a smart one. And I think that I've seen that for several years um, as an organizer, that specificity on local organizing, on local efforts being uh, the foundation to a lot of work and a lot of success that many movements have seen. Part of the reason why we were very clear about being a national organization is we wanted to consider the areas of the country that certainly are consistently underserved. The Midwest, you know, I'm from Ohio and, you know, I tell people so much, there's there's no LGBT center where I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And if it is, it's not one that's accessible by the community consistently. There's no homeless shelter for LGBT people where I grew up. Having those understandings and then having the opportunity to live in New York for over 10 years, back and forth over a 10-year period, I got to see what is available to a young trans woman in New York City that's not available to a young trans woman in Missouri. For us, we've always thought about our work as being necessary across the country, but also what areas of our country can we have a localized impact? What areas can we see a localized difference? And so whether it's in Dallas, Texas, or Columbus, Ohio, or New York City, we've certainly done our part to really try to support local efforts, you know, in D.C. And a lot of our work, I will say, really came out of the murders of of Black trans women. We were solving for that. That was really why this organization was born, because we saw this consistent media saturation of murder, 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 but there Mm -hmm. were no solutions being offered. And that is part of the reason why the local efforts are super, super important for every service provider, for every advocacy organization to consider their part in supporting those because these murders are not happening in an isolated place. They're happening consistently across the board. So thinking about that nationally and locally is the only way we get out of it. And it's the same way with the pandemic. That was beautifully put. Do you think a lot of people have changed, completely changed their mindset over the last year in terms of belief in existing structures. I'm talking primarily of like people figuring out that the police are bad. And I'm saying people and I mean white people, middle class, upper class Mm -hmm. people, cis Mm -hmm. people, uh, figuring out that, you know, the police are bad and wait a minute, like landlords might be bad and wait a minute, Mm -hmm. like prison might be bad. Mm -hmm. Are you hopeful because of this momentum? Or I think maybe part of it is probably like, where have you been? No, I'm not very (laughs) hopeful. I hear you. I try not to put any hopes and beliefs in white people or cis people or middle, upper 
class. I like I try not to because as soon as you put your hopes in, I think there is some decision that undermines that hope. So I try to put my hope in black people. I try to put my hope into black trans people. And I try to make sure that the Marsha P. Johnson Institute does our work without any expectations of anything back. I was just sort of blown away when I was reading about how quickly you guys like got together and did a COVID relief fund when people were still in denial about COVID. Like that's what really mm-hmm. stuck out to me, how how fast you moved. And I think that's based on history. So thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. It's an honor. You know, I, I lost my granny to COVID. And I think having that experience very early on, she passed in May. Oh, wow. I think was also really helpful in letting me know what everyone else was experiencing, that I wasn't just experiencing this alone, that there was someone else who probably lost their grandmother too, that there was somebody else who lost a loved one. So having, again, that experience, that lived experience, I think is always much more valuable than any theory or debate that you know, those who don't believe, those who haven't been touched by certain lived experiences just could never understand. So I'm grateful to be able to share with your audience and to share with you, but to share with the world what can happen when we take care of ourselves, but what can happen when we take care of each other. That's really beautiful. Tell people your Twitter as well. Yeah, your listeners, they can follow the Marsha P. Johnson Institute at MPJ Institute, all one word. And your listeners can follow me, L at Soul Free Dreams. That's S-O-U-L-F-R-E-E-D-R-E-A-M-S. Soul Free Dreams. Hello, welcome to Dear Gabby, the segment where I listen to your voicemails and voice memos, read your emails and your reviews if they are five stars. Here's an email we got today. Hello, Gabby. I am relatively lucky about this pandemic situation. I only really struggled over the summer. I am a teacher and usually teach at a camp. Over the summer, my camp gig was canceled and I was slammed with medical debt and supporting my retired family. I had to rely on food pantries and local charities to get tampons and toothpaste. Hot tip, mix baking soda with deodorant and toothpaste because you can use food stamps to buy the baking soda. I cried myself to sleep because I had to choose between eating less and buying laundry detergent while scrolling through Instagram watching friends who work in the same field posting pictures of pretty hikes they went on and complaining about how boring the summer break was. I am also in a social justice community and the broker I got, the more I noticed bougie classism in the scene. I saw lots of hashtag solidarity not charity, which made me feel bad about getting tampons and hygienic supplies from charity instead of a mutual aid. Do not feel bad about that. Do not feel bad about doing anything you can to survive. I also got teased by my friends about how much I needed a sugar daddy and how I should shoplift. Jesus. I have lost a lot of friends as a result of people teasing me and because I am not able to afford train fare to go meet up. I am now back at work and in a much more stable place, but the trauma of the instability has totally shaped my thinking. I still struggle with things like self-care. The other day I made a pro and con list about purchasing a new set of Sharpies. If I have learned anything, it's that financial instability limits your options in every part of your life and adds an extra underlying stress to your life. 
100%. They didn't sign it, and I didn't want to say their name in case they didn't want me to. 100%, 100%, this is going to have long-term trauma effects. And you are not the only one. You are definitely not alone. some five-star listener reviews. I love to read five-star reviews. Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and give me five stars and just tell me what has changed your life about this podcast. You can also just write, Gabby is the smartest person I've ever listened to if you don't know what to write. So here are some five-star reviews. T-Panda Salamanda. A salve for the financially bewildered. The content of this podcast should be incorporated into high school curriculums across the country. Oh. Gabby disentangles the foggiest parts of economic systems and forces in ways that make them clear for the most confused and disinterested of us and also motivates listeners to act for the improvement of themselves and others. Gabby is a saint for the financially bewildered. Thanks for your hard work. Oh. Thank you so much for telling me that I can fix confused people, and also get people interested who are disinterested. That is the whole goal of this show. Five stars, Sorta Rican Millennial writes, This podcast is everything. Whatever your reason for not understanding money, it doesn't matter. This podcast is entertaining, informative, and takes the shame out of not understanding financial stuff. Even if you do understand financial stuff, I'll bet you'll learn something listening to Bad With Money. So give it a shot. Yeah, guys, just give me a shot. <laughs> okay, five stars. Zenderia12 writes, The financial literacy people need. I love this show and how well done and insightful it is. This podcast has taught me so much and is so nuanced and thorough in every topic. I have come to realize how much personal finance is much more personal and how a lot of the advice and guidance we are given is not applicable to most. I love this show. So if you want to leave a review, go to Apple Podcasts, go to the bottom of the page and leave a review or at least leave me five stars. And thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed the show so far. I love you all. Bad With Money is produced and edited by Lindsay Floyd and sound engineered and mixed by Joey Salvia. The supervising producer is Lindsay Floyd and the executive producer is John Wardock. Theme song was performed by Sam Barbera and written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. Additional music by Joey Salvia. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will talk to you next Wednesday. <laughs>